0: If there's ever a time where we needed to pull together as believers of Christ and and unite and try to strengthen and make the world a better place, it's now. Mm -hmm. That that sounds like he's preaching our message. (laughs) There's one body, one church, one spirit, one hope. The realities of the faith, the realities that unify us are already there. Christ prayed for unity. What should we all be praying for? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the one prayer request of Jesus. Think about it. In the Bible, that we actually have a say in whether or not it comes to fruition or not. I think in what God has done in you guys, in uh, in this podcast, and the, the multitude of folks that you're reaching, the diversity, whatever God intended when he when you started this, He's able to bring it to completion. All right, everybody, welcome to the Whole Church Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Joshua Knoll. Here is your other host, the one and only Tiberius One. Ah, yeah. Um, we're really excited today. We are talking to Dr. T Sherlin, or uh, Dr. Sherlin, whatever you want to call him. He says, as long as it's not negative, he's okay with it. <laughs> but uh, we're really excited. We have some, um, we're going to talk to him about his view on theology, how it fits in with the rest of the church, especially, you know, more fundamentalist, as well as I think we're going to touch on the topic of polygamy and some of the historic arguments over that with theology. So stick in there. should be a very interesting episode. Uh, Before we go on, I wanted to review some of what our audience has responded to, what we've put on our social media account, where you can follow us, Facebook and Instagram. Um, We've recently asked them one of our silly questions from last episode on what would be your favorite traffic sign? So just a few answers we wanted to share. Uh, We've had once someone said one way, thought oh, that was pretty funny. Uh, there was uh, one, my two favorites, actually. I'll just give those. There was one who said the sign Hump. Oh, that's just funny. And then the other one was Erin uh, Hardy. She's been on the show before. Said that apparently when she was little, she thought that traffic lights had little men in them that would hold up signs. So she said traffic lights are her favorite traffic sign. I just thought that was funny enough that I needed to share but uh, thank you so much to all of our audience who participating in what we're doing, social media and all that, and just kind of being a part of the show. You guys are our favorites. Um, that being said, we have a mini segment we started called the greeting card segment, where uh, Dr. Sherilyn, I'm going to. I have twelve cards here, just like no cards. I'm going to shuffle these up. Um, some of them just say stuff like, "What's the last thing that made you smile?" That kind of thing, and then. Whatever I land on when you say stop, we're just gonna ask you that, have you answer it, and we'll move on. Unless it's one of the two gold cards, in which case I'll reshuffle, and we'll ask you another question. So you'll answer that as well as another. Does that sound good?
1: So I just pick any time and say stop?
0: Yeah, just uh, you let me know. I'm starting to shuffle now. I'll count seven. All right, perfect.
1: All right, seven, stop. All right, what was the last TV show you watched? The news,
0: last night's news. All right, sweet, short, do the point. <laughs> that was our greeting card segment. <laughs> All
2: right, so of course, uh, running a show like this comes with uh, you know certain things that we require. Uh, there are many ways that you can all help us keep improving what we do here. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter uh, at The Whole Church Podcast. Uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcast. Just hit the subscribe button. If it's available, like the episodes, you know, all the good stuff. Uh, you can email us at thewholechurch@gmail.com at to ask us about more specific needs that you may be able to contribute to or just give us feedback. Uh, but the best and easiest ways to help are by giving us a five-star review wherever you listen, uh, supporting us on Patreon for as little as one dollar a month, or sharing this episode on your own social media accounts, which is by far the best way. So keep that in mind.
0: Yeah, probably also the easiest way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So today's silly question, because we always start with one. If of you course. had to, yeah. If you had to choose, would you rather be? a professional athlete that gets paid the least in his league or a complete anonymous nobody that makes eh, you know 10 million 20 million dollars a year you know just from the stock market but no one knows you're rich no one knows who you are
1: and that's a question to me
2: that's a question to everyone i'll go first <laughs> so uh I would choose to be the lowest paid player in the NHL because, I mean, it's, it'd be like $800,000 a year. I'm okay with that. I get to play hockey for a living. That'd be fun.
0: Probably. So this question is basically would I rather be famous or rich? Would you rather be famous? Compounded with, the idea of doing something that I would like while not being that rich. Yes. Hmm. You know, I'm still going to say rich and anonymous, but only because if I had to pick a sport that I wanted to do, it would be football. And even if I'm not that likely to play, I still might get hurt. Eh, I'd rather just be rich. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: yeah. Understandable. Dr. Keith?
1: Well, the anonymous part would probably be the part that would bother me the most. Speaking here on ministry show too, probably not being able to, you know, do much for the ministry itself would be a problem for me. So I'd take the, uh, probably play football, maybe be like a punter or a kicker or something. Although I can't kick That's or punt at all. And uh, at least have some uh, influence on my field to try to, you know, use it for the gospel in some way, shape, or form, I suppose. It's probably what yeah. I'd do. Yeah. That's a
2: good choice. Yeah. Great. Answer. Kicker seems like a nice cushy job. <laughs> you <lose> the <laughs>
0: Man, my, brother, <laughs> my brother says that what he wants to do is whenever they have a kid, he has a kid to start him as soon as possible. Just practice kicking a ball. Cause he's a kid. You can be rich just by getting really good at kicking a football. It's not sure wrong. you good.
2: Yeah. All right. So now we've got our intro out of the way. Uh, we heard of you through my sister, Taryn, uh, you know, related to me, patron, consider following in her footsteps. Uh, And you're in her (laughs) small group Bible study?
1: Yes, uh, we're in the same home group together.
2: Hmm. Right. Uh, So do you think the restrictions on large gatherings, you know, from the pandemic, uh, do you think that will cause more at-home Bible studies or home churches to pop up?
1: Well, it's possible. Um are tough situations we're facing in 2020. It could lead more people meeting at homes, smaller groups, either spread out, maybe, possibly in some settings. So that's a possibility.
0: So, what would you say your stance is on the whole home church movement that's been going on the last two years, even before the pandemic? Are you kind of in favor of that, or?
1: Oh yeah, I've actually pastored in a home church setting um, once before, where we had home churches. Um, we had all the churches that meet together, you know, on Sundays or so, and then had home meetings at times, week and various things in the church that, I'm um, in now we have what we call bucket groups, um, where we have home group meetings. As you mentioned, I'm in one with your sister there. Mm-hmm. And I think the New Testament is pretty clear about the emphasis on it. Now there's no command that it must be done that way, but it certainly is mentioned. I, I, I just looked it up today just to make sure I had my numbers right. I did over at least 10 times. Uh, we have them mentioned in the New Testament, Acts two, 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 forty-two, and 4.6, 5, forty-two; twenty, twenty; 20.20, Romans sixteen, five; First 1 Corinthians 16.19, chapter 14, verse 26, Colossians 4.15, and Philemon two. are uh, statements wow. in the New Testament where the churches were meeting in homes.
2: So you said Acts 20.20 20 mentions home churches. Ironic.
1: Why is that <laughs> ironic?
2: It is 20.20 and talking about home churches.
1: Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah. So, what do you think that this kind of home church or city church that we see, like in the book of Acts, what would that look like today if the church decided to kind of remodel as a whole, decided to remodel itself after the church of Acts like that? What would it look like?
1: Well, buildings didn't really come into prominence until around the 300s when Constantine made Christianity legal. And that's when they started building. He actually funded some of it with government funding. Um, Prior to that, you would have churches meeting in home or believers. You would have a zip code. Let's just say, I'll use the zip code, I mean, 29356. You'd have the believers in this area who would have a shepherd they would identify with, and they would meet in that shepherd's home or a deacon's home, whatever somebody may host it, and the shepherd come there. But there would be a facility somewhere where they would host out of a hospitable spirit. And you would have multiple elders in a zip code, and you would have a ministry team. And usually in that ministry team, they would convene and pick someone to be the Episcopal, first Timothy 3, 2 role. That would be somewhat like the Peter of the organization or a Paul to a Titus or Timothy organization. It'd be kind of the first among equals who would give leadership to the whole ministry team. And then those believers would meet and do uh, the things that churches do—care for widows and orphans, and care for the poor, and help people who are in need, spiritual guidance, and teach and preach and ch- disciples, and make disciples, and help people come to the gospel and come to Jesus—and then do that all throughout the zip code they were in.
0: Wow, sounds like a sounds like a good thing. <laughs> hmm. how it was in the New Testament, th- I think. <laughs> yeah, how, how far away from that do you think we are now? <laughs> Is that like, like distant future? A distant, like probably well, not going to get there anytime soon.
1: And I think it's still happening in places. Um, there's always going to be the home church movement globally. Uh, for instance, and we'll talk about more of this shortly. When I went to India and teaching over there, when I was preaching, it was uh, upstairs. It's kind of like what you saw in Acts. We went up to the the top story of the house, and they had this section set off up there with head chairs and a pulpit and I preached and they did music and everything up there, kind of of like the top of the house in India. And so I don't think it's necessarily foreign. I just think that it's not emphasized as much in our corporate mindset Christianity. The larger churches get sometimes the less these become prominent. And um, it's probably more so a shift of emphasis than anything else.
0: Yeah. You know, it's a – you know, I wouldn't praise Elevation Church and everything that it does, but I will say I do really appreciate that. As someone who lives in Charlotte, I've seen so many times they have their small groups meeting and stuff, and I like that they haven't lost that idea, at least, you know? It's pretty neat. I know a lot of large churches have, like you said. It's easy to do. It's easy to lose
1: that, that um, smaller context. And there's a danger in doing that because clearly throughout the New Testament, you see elders in the plural. Uh, Titus when Paul told Titus appoint elders in each town or city it was elders in the plural um, so it's hard not it's hard for a single leadership church uh, to shepherd people if there's too many people trying to shepherd you really lose contact with the people so you know, uh, you know 12 to 25 I think in one of the churches archaeologists archaeologists have discovered that they knocked out a center wall of the room of a lady's house there in the, in the in 200s, and they um, probably could get up about 60 or 70 people in that one house church. And so you'd probably have a an elder or two shepherding that group, and then other house churches with an elder or two in that group as well. And then those elders had less weight on them because they could focus on fewer people. Right. Uh,
2: so you told us, and by us I mean Joshua, Uh, (laughs) You weren't sure what denomination you would consider yourself. Uh, So we've decided if it's okay with you to start our speed round to get to know your stances a little better. All right. All right. So just to go over the rules real quick, uh, for our speed round, the questions, you have to either answer them in one sentence or skip them. Okay. And we are not allowed to ask follow-up questions.
0: Okay. Except the one that's written (laughs) in. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Except for the one that's
0: written in. All right. Uh, so should I count now Sure. Okay. Let's go. Three, two, one,
2: go. Are you a young or earth or an old earth creationist?
1: I would not fall into either of those. I'm a old universe, young earth viewpoint.
2: All right. Uh do you believe in a literal
1: atom? Absolutely, as Jesus did. He spoke of an actual Adam who represented the entire human race.
2: Do you better follow replacement theology or dual covenant theology?
1: Neither. I'm a dispensationalist.
2: Do you consider yourself a biblical literalist?
1: That's a loaded term for literalist. I usually just say I follow the historical grammatical hermeneutic and try to follow that consistently from Genesis Revelation. All
2: right. What is your view on biblical inerrancy?
1: I subscribe to the Chicago State of in Inherency and believe every single word and scripture or inspired as stated in 2 Timothy 3.16, Theokanustos.
2: All right. Do you believe in predestination?
1: Well, everybody believes in some form of predestination. And we'll <laughs> talk about that shortly in a little bit. There's the Calvinists, the High ones, the Moderates, and then there's the Molinists, and the Amaraldians, as I am, and then there's the uh, Armenians. So everybody believes in some form of predestination in some way, shape, or form.
2: All right. What is your stance on speaking in
1: tongues? I believe miracles can happen and the Lord can work in such a way that someone can speak in a language, another person hear it in their own language, especially in the gospel context It happens. I do not think the New Testament supports people um, continually being able to speak in tongues at will just whenever they want to. That was a unique apostolic gift uh, that ceased with the apostles, although the miracle of tongues being gifted occurred.
2: Uh, What is your stance on the
1: Apocrypha? It's historical writings, valuable for history. I'm actually using some of the writings now, preparing for a debate next year. It's historical literature, it's helpful, but it's not inquiring.
2: Do you believe in the sacraments?
1: I wouldn't use the word sacraments, but I certainly do believe in the Lord's Supper, and I definitely believe in baptism, although it's debated exactly whether we need to put a lot of water on them, a little bit of water, and what time it should (laughs) occur.
2: Uh, Is that all the sacraments you believe in?
1: Well, there's some debate over that. Of course, Roman Catholics have a higher number than I would. And uh, so I'm probably not where they are on it. But the word sacrament means sacred graces. So there's many graces in the New Testament that we see, however you want to define those.
2: Awesome. That concludes our speed round. Thanks for playing. Man. So
0: many follow-up questions I'd like to ask, but it's against <laughs> the rules, so I won't. Oh, man. I, I, I will remind our listeners that TJ and I, however, are pretty pretty traditional Pentecostals. We'll leave that at that. <laughs> uh, so you told us that you like the acronym READ, R-E-A-D, to describe your beliefs. Um, so I just kind of wanted to go through that really quick. So we can discuss what it means and how others who believe differently can still be united, right? Because as soon as we have an acronym, we have beliefs. As soon as we have beliefs, we have people who disagree, which is always an obstacle when we're trying, you know, strive for unity, right? Okay, it can so, be. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's not always. But. So uh you said R in the read stands for reformed. You believe in reformed theology, correct?
1: Yes, it's reformed theology and the Protestant version of it. Um would be the five solas scripture alone is the highest authority salvation in christ alone salvation by faith alone in christ salvation by uh, grace alone and, and all glory to god alone those would be the five solas that are the keys to the reformation movement and then you have the four models in the lower portion of it you mentioned um um, the difference is there. You have the high Calvinists and the medium Calvinists, and then you have the Amaraldians, like myself, who are low, moderates, or sublapsarians. We believe in the atonement for all, whereas high Calvinists limit the atonement. Then you have the Molinists, Louis de Molina, who taught that God uses middle knowledge and possible worlds to affect one coming to faith. And then you have Jacob Arminius, who the Armenian version of the Reformation, Dutch reform movement, stressed God's election took place. By a proper faith response, the provenient grace and the Holy Spirit working to move into uh, faith. So you have four types of Reformation models coming out of those five solas. And of course, I'm in the low Calvinist, sub Lazaran, Amaraldian tradition.
0: Okay. So um, just to make this a little bit easier for everybody, um, we've had something that we kind of, I think it was like episode 11. We talked to Dr. Beck and Dr. Link, a couple of my old professors, and kind of came up with it. They have this, they, he calls it like a three-tier system, right? So if it's an issue is first tier, we can't be united as Christians at all because you're not Christian. If yes. it's second tier, we can still be united as Christians, but maybe not go to the same church. If it's third tier, we can still disagree and go to the same church even. You know, it's not that big a deal. So uh, just kind of laying out that platform, where would you say this issue lies as far as like the tiers? As far as Having to have reformed theology, is that a first-tier issue or what What would you say?
1: Only the salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. you know, Salvation by grace through faith alone, Christ alone. Uh, scripture alone, that would be uh, essential. Those first five solas would be essential. Now, how election works is not essential. Now, that's a how something not works, not what it is. Salvation, we know what salvation is. Salvation is of grace by faith in Christ alone. And all of us And all the traditions of evangelicalism would agree with that. Now, we articulate a few hows that works out a little bit differently, but certainly not election. Election would not be a first-tier issue.
0: Okay, so just for example, um, I know the Catholic Church believes that you're saved through faith and work. So it's God and man working together, thus you get salvation. Um, Would you say that that you can no longer be united with Catholics because that's no longer faith alone right that's faith with something you run into
1: some very substantive problems when you start adding works to it there's three marks of the cult and when i teach in seminary and i teach my students this there's three marks of the cult they violate some form of the trinity which the roman catholics do with mary uh, they violate that also you have the works by salvation the cult usually emphasizes some type of works and then they mess up the scripture some type of authority above the bible they mess all three up they mess the trinity up they mess salvation up and they mess uh, the Pope having equal authority to the scriptures when he speaks ex cathedra. So
0: you're going to have a major so, problem with that. Okay. So how how do you figure they mess up the Trinity with Mary?
1: Well, you have the issues of co-redemptive aspects of that. Some of their uh, scholars have been pushing and promoting co-redemptive nature of Mary, which runs into certain problems there for sure. Oh, okay.
0: Interesting. All right. So... Just moving along here, we got a. Uh, the E stands for evangelical. What, what does it really mean to be the evangelical? You hear that a lot on the news these days, but uh, what, what's it mean? Exactly. Something
1: what you just spoke about. Evangelicals are distinct from the fundamentalists in that we adopt the first three or four confessions of the early church: Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, and then the Chalcedonian Creed, the fourth one most of the time. And that's a broad umbrella. You want to talk about unity? We can have a lot of unity. <laughs> by embracing those. That was the universal church. The Lord blessed us with those early confessions that gave us the doctrine of the Trinity, gave us the doctrines of the Holy Scripture, gave us the fundamentals of the faith, uh, the gospel and the Trinity and Scripture and the the gospel meaning Jesus, virgin born, died, substitute sin, rose again, coming again in the future. We have a lot of room for uh, unity right there with those first confessions. And also evangelicals will distinguish, as you rightly noted, I learned it from people like Dr. Norman Geisler and others that um, there are certain keys in Scripture that are more important than others. Certain truths are more important than others. Uh, For instance, you guys are Pentecostalists, one of my favorite Pentecostalist scholars, or you have affiliation in some sense with that, I think you said. Um, Gordon D.C., one of my favorite scholars. Um, Love his writings, his book on the Holy Spirit, 800 page volume, wonderful. Have a lot of good fellowship with my Pentecostal charismatic friends. We can unite on these things that are major discuss the secondary issues and sometimes agree, sometimes have some differences and we can discuss that and still do the work of the gospel together and make disciples in the Lord without separating over some of these secondary issues. And so evangelicals have been very uh, helpful in that by offering the triage is sometimes what we call it, graded scale of doctrine or theological triage.
0: Okay. So again, back to the tier system, as far as being evangelical. Where does that fall on the tier? Can someone be in Christian Unity and not be evangelical, or is that a first tier, second tier, third tier issue? Well,
1: it depends on the gospel's a first tier issue. They believe Jesus Christ, virgin born, died, rose again, and is coming again, and it's salvation only in Christ. Jesus, uh, you know, made a direct statement. There's John fourteen six: no way to the Father except through me. And then we have the statement: salvation by grace through faith. And so. When we start talking about the gospel, the gospel is the hallmark in the evangelical. And outside of that, you're flirting with a major problem. Well, if you start diverting from the gospel, you, oh, okay. think, you, meant, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, you think outside of that the other issues of evangelical are major problems.
1: I'm like, oh, okay. No, no, no. If you you know, if you divert outside yeah. of the gospel, you've you violated the very core fundamental of the
0: faith okay. from the start. But could someone Believe in the gospel and not be evangelical.
1: Well, it would be difficult if you have the right understanding of the gospel. Um, if you affirm the 1st creeds three—Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and Athanasian Creed—that gets you Trinity and the gospel um, all wrapped up in there. And then you have the words of Holy Scripture, and so you have the emphasis on the Scriptures. And the the keys to the evangelical movement were a proper view of the Trinity, proper view of the Scripture, that the Lord created us. He came to earth as Jesus died, rose again, is coming again. And you must believe in him to have eternal salvation. So uh, that there is so fundamental to the essence of the faith. If you if you have that right, then you have a good foundation to work out. All right.
0: Yeah. I just know there's a few different, you know, leaders who were evangelical who are, you know, like, oh, maybe we don't want to be caught this term anymore just because, you know, some of the connotations and, today's, but we, we won't get into that, that's
1: just. Yeah, you have to define your terms. Defining yeah. your terms are important. What is, What is the word mean, and once you get the definition, you
0: can figure it out from there. Yeah, all right, so we got RE, now we're on to A. A stands for Amarildian, right? <laughs> Amaraldian. Amaraldian, man, that's yeah. a that's a word. <laughs> so, what, what exactly does that mean?
1: Well, Amarald was a theologian who believed to, he believed that he he consistently carried out what Calvin was originally teaching and the more consistent version of it. Mois Amaral lived in 1596, to 1664. He was a Reformed theologian. And the key to Amaral in theology is that um, it affirms the doctrine of election that God elects, but he does it through uh, after the atonement of Christ in the order of the sequence, meaning uh, in a sublapsarian order, it's God created, then God permitted the fall, and then sent Christ to save the world and offer salvation to all. And then after those people refuse him, God works in an effectual way to make sure that some will be elected and come to faith after everyone has resisted. So it's a little bit of a different version of a a Calvinistic order, and it stresses, as Calvin did, that Christ died for each and every person of humankind. All
0: right, so... How is how is that fall? You know, if you're Calvinist, if you're let me, let me try again, Emeraldian? Amaraldian. Emeraldian. Okay, if you're Calvinist, Emeraldian or Armenian, what, what, is that a first tier issue? Or second I don't tier think issue? so. Or? No,
1: that that falls into how God elects. And again, I'm actually working on a PhD right now, studying Dr. Norman Geisler discussion of this subject of election and sub sublapsarian tradition. And it's again, it's how someone comes to faith. It's not what is faith. What yeah. what what is faith is believing in Jesus for the redemption of sins, not how someone comes to faith. So the how someone comes to the faith, whether it's through unconditional election, conditional election, or however you want to define that,
0: is not first tier essential. Okay. So what is first tier? So this how would you put it at second or third tier, if it's not first?
1: It's probably going to fall in the second category, second degree. Um, you're probably going to at least be second degree, maybe third degree. I mean, I have close fellowship. One of my favorite professors and mentors is, is you know, doesn't hold. And then I studied under Norman Geister, and I don't think he held the unconditional election. And um, Dr. Luck didn't either. So I've had a lot of professors I've had who I could certainly function with him and do the work of the gospel with who don't, don't define election the way I do.
0: Yeah, I am. Um... I see. I would say that I'm undecided on that particular subject. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm smart enough to pick one. But uh, my my brother, smarter than I am, apparently, he's uh he's pretty strong Calvinist. So you know who will go to our church. You know most Pentecostal churches, even though I don't think our pastor ever comes out and says he's Arminian, most Pentecostal churches kind of fall under the Arminian camp. So, you know, in that direction. Yeah. So he's able to attend with us, but I, I don't think he'd be able to attend all the time with us. He's just kind of like, uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah. sort I of feel like. Okay. All right. So we're at R E A, finally we have D. D stands for dispensationalist. What can no, you tell I us about Oh, go ahead.
1: Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, you know, that one one thing, some people make that an essential and they do damage to the church. I've seen churches really harmed by people elevating the doctrine of election to such a status that they cause a lot of problems and that's not a healthy thing for the body of Christ. Could you could you give us an example? Well, schismatic, they, they elevate something to it. And that, you know, if you don't agree with it, they don't think you're a believer. They think you're a heretic, but they start branding you as a false believer. And that's, that's not only unloving. It's just not a healthy expression. The church has been debating this for 2,000 years, how to best define this. Some of the greatest minds in the history of the faith have wrestled with this. George Whitfield, John Wesley did. So it's just not, it's just not a healthy, mature uh, perspective to try to brand somebody as a heretic just because they
0: define election a little differently. Than you do. Uh, yeah. That's
1: just that's just not healthy. All right, that makes
0: sense. Definitely got, would be damaging to church unity. <laughs> yes, it would. Yeah. So All the right,
1: dispensationalists. So, um, uh, you yeah. can remember dispensationalism kind of like a three-legged seat, three legs on a seat. The uh, first principle is we interpret the Bible from his from a historical-grammatical hermeneutic, as I mentioned a little bit ago, from Genesis to Revelation. We try to interpret your scriptures consistently that way, and you say, "Well, how do you know you're doing it?" Well, there's a litmus test for that. Let's look at the nature of Israel. We believe as a dispensationalist that God made specific land promises to the ethnic seed of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and specifically Jacob, whose name became Israel. And so Israel will receive their land promises one day in the future when Christ returns in the millennium. And all the promises made to the body of Christ also will come true. So he makes promises, both ethnic Israel and the body of Christ and also the glory of God is the central motive of Scripture. We believe that God does all things for His glory. The Old Testament, New Testament, numerous times mentions um, God did this for His glory. He mentions in Corinthians, do all things for the glory of God, whether eating or drinking. So the glory of God is a central motive to all of Scripture and gives a broad umbrella for a central motive. Lastly, what distinguishes the dispensationalists from other uh, versions of Christianity, to mentioned supersessionism and replacement theology, we would hold those promises to Israel true and not going to be replaced by any other uh, anything else. And They're not forfeited. And there's three distinct periods of history. There's the Old Testament period of history, the New Testament period of history, and the future kingdom coming period of history where Christ will rule and reign in Israel. You can read Zechariah 14. It says his feet will stand on this earth, on the ground, and all the nations will come before him as he rules from Israel. So I joke with my friends and I say, "Get ready. The White House is moving to Israel and Jerusalem and it happens." <laughs> and uh, so we're going to have a uh, kingdom rule there. So the dispensationalists would define it that way: three legs and
0: a seat type of model. <laughs> All right, then so again, placing that in the tier system, would you say that's first, second, third tier when it comes to being dispensationalist or you know, replacement theology, whatever?
1: Well, I have certain friends of mine who are replacement theologians. Many good theologians have been in the history of the church who had the gospel, right? And I certainly can partner with them in the ministry for the gospel. So I certainly wouldn't divide with someone over uh, that subject there. I don't think that would be helped at all. It would fall more so in the secondary, second tier, other areas. Like for the instance, the rapture would be a, a level C issue. Uh, the millennium might be a uh, level B issue. But now the fact that Jesus is coming in the future is a first level issue. That's a, uh, as all the confessions mentioned, Jesus is coming. The preterist, the full preterist, would fall outside of that category. So <laughs> they would say Jesus has already returned in 70, and that's a supersessionist uh, covenant theologian reading. So we would say to them, no, you've you've departed the faith on that.
0: Yeah. So it's, so it's all three. <laughs> first here, Jesus coming back in the future. Second year might be. You know, you said millennium or whatever. Mentally
1: in you rain, know, the other yeah. timing of the millennium.
0: And I can absolutely agree the tertiary with the, uh, you know, when when exactly is it, you know.
1: Yeah. As D.L. Moody used to say, yeah. don't let, <laughs> just because your watch says 12 o'clock, D.L. Moody, you say, if your watch says 12, mine says three and yours says six, let us not divide over that. Yeah.
0: I, I'm trying to remember. I, I don't remember if my pastor is pre or post-trib. I, I, I know he was one of the two. <clears> I, I'm mid-trib, but. I'm still comfortable having him as my pastor, so, you know, that yeah. tells you how I feel about it. Dr. Gleason Archer, a good
1: scholar, was a mid-tribulationist as well. He wrote the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, a wonderful Bible Honestly,
0: scholar. I don't remember the name of the book. I, I wish I could tell you. I might drop it in the show link. But uh, my friend of mine who went to Liberty University gave me a book that was about the three. And he was like, yeah, tell me what, what you think about it and where you fall on this, right? And I read the book, and I was like, man. This guy's so much smarter than me. I, I'm just going to pick mid because, you know, <laughs> that. <laughs> that seems like the safest option. <laughs> All three options sounded so good.
1: Well, there's been a lot of discussion over that for sure. Oh, yeah. I'm a pre-tribulationist. So I hold to the pre-trib rapture. But... I mean, I hope you're right. I, I don't want to go yeah. through it. <laughs> I hope I'm right, too.
0: Yeah. I think everybody should just be pre-trib because it, it sounds nicer. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Right. So now that we've been over the read acronym, uh, you've recently started a book project on the topic of polygamy. What can you tell us about that project and how it gets started?
1: Well, this subject comes up I've had professors address this subject you know very scantly here or there, just a little you know like one of my professors said one time in seminary he was a Jewish professor, a Hebrew Christian, Dr. Fruitenbaum said, "Well, the problem with that when it come up in the classroom, a student asked a question about it in one of the Old Testament texts, and he said well, the big problem with that is um, um, the two mother-in-laws will get you every time, so you better be careful with that. <laughs> yeah, that <that's laughs> um, a good enough
0: point. I think we can yeah. move
1: on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the subject hasn't been fleshed out in America very well, and, and I've had different professors, you know, say different things over it. And a good friend of mine, uh, you know, Dr. Ryrie was a no on the perspective that it was sin, but his student, Dr. Fruchtenbaum was, no, it's not a sin. That's a Gentile, Gentilian way to read the Bible. It's not a sin. And Dr. Geisler was a no, and then his student, Dr. Luck uh, was a yes. So there's been, over the history, there's been a lot of different uh, stances on this subject of how to actually deal with this. And it's a very, uh, it's a subject that's been avoided in America because America just hasn't had to deal with it that much inside the body of Christ. But now with more um, people, migrating to america from other countries is starting to become more of a topic and when i was in india teaching this come up uh last year and i got drilled and grilled on this because supposedly some american missionaries went over there and caused a lot of ruckus caused a lot of problems with making families split up making couples and families who were living that way as as christians to, divorce and put away women and children and they were with no husbands and children had no fathers and it was a mess and they were really upset about it and they were asking me i was teaching through the book of the whole bible six, six books of the bible finding christ in the book of the bible and we got the song of solomon and they really started hammering me on the subject and i you know i've here and there uh examined it and of course been around a friend dr luck he's taught on it he's a retired professor of a movie he's taught on it for years dr fruit the bomb has taught on it some from dallas seminary and, and so I've been around it and interacted with some of it with them, but not to the degree that I needed to actually be able to answer these people's questions to the level they wanted answers. And I just told them, I said, I don't know, guys, so there's some good questions you're asking me. I haven't examined this in quite some time. It's been years since I've, you know, interacted with this, and, but I will work on it. And so I came back to America and got some scholars together and i talked about a book project on this several times over the years, but just never did pan out. But this time it did. And I, I explained it to everybody and I said, would you be willing to take the yes perspective? And Dr. Lux said yes. And, uh, Professor Quiggle, who's written over 60 books, would take the no perspective. And uh, I got about a six, I mean a seven, um, excuse me, I got a 12 to 14 member team together, started off with seven editors and then moved it up to about 14 and there's Six or seven men and six or seven women, and they're ranging from family therapists, to counselors to missionaries to theologians, pastors, and teachers. and they started this book, a counterpoint book and letting them debate it out in this book. and I wrote the introduction to it, and then they're debating it. and uh, where it ends, I do not know, but it's it's been an interesting journey to see. there's six views. That are in Christianity. And I didn't know that until I actually started studying this from early church. This view, this subject has never been settled. It's never really been addressed. And certainly not within um, American Christianity. We've really just dropped the ball in trying to deal with this. And we're going to have to because as more people come here, Muslims coming in our country, more, uh, 80 to 90% of the other countries practice this in some way, shape, or form. And so when they migrate to America, we're going to have to deal with it um especially Muslims coming to faith and people coming from these cultures that practice that, we need to have an answer for it, and then we really don't. And the six views in Christianity are, yes, it's holy and lawful. Well, the second view is it's not ideal, but it's allowed and not sinful. The third view is it's not for elders and deacons, but it is allowed for those who are not ministers. The fourth view is it's lawful where the civil law permits it and unlawful where the civil law opposes it. The fifth view is it's allowed in the Old Testament, but sin in the New Testament. And the sixth view is no, it's always sin. And those all, all six of those views have been expressed from early church history all the way down to the modern era. And I was surprised in doing the historiography on this of how many yeses there were in history. Martin Luther actually was a yes view. John Calvin was a no view. Two of the most prominent Reformed members in the Protestant Reformation had different views on this. And... Augustine was a yes, Luther was a yes, and we, Ignatius and Augustine, early church, were defenders of it. Uh, Justin Martyr and Methodius were opposed to it, and Thomas Aquinas was confused. He said, ah, uh, patriarchal marriages are partially acceptable and partially unacceptable, so he was kind of riding the fence on it, didn't really know exactly how to explain it himself. And even some modern women, I'm surprised, you know, that we've got, we've got Elizabeth Elliott who taught at Gordon Conwell Seminary. She was pro that. She was on the pro side, um, so we've got some, you know, um, Stephanie Forbes, a legal scholar. She talks about it. So, so it's it's, it's something that that has to be explored, um, and it'd be interesting to see where we all land on this and how it fleshes out when we look at it. Um, you know, the the scholarship is pretty interesting in the modern scholars. You got you got Independent Baptist fundamentalists who were um, for it and believed that it was. In some sense, holy. Uh, for instance, John R. Rice, the Independent Baptist fundamentalist, he was. He said, "There's no law against it. You can't make them divorce." And then you have others who, of course, uh, take the opposite view on that and believe it is sin and that they should. Mentioning Gleason Archer, he he was the one who said monogamy. Talking about mid tribulations, he was. He held that monogamy was God's ideal, but it was not necessarily adultery for believers to live that way. Of course, now Willard Harley. Psychologist, a famous psychologist, wrote his needs, her needs. Um, he's fundamentally opposed to it. I mean, completely. He says he's more opposed to, to patriarchal polygyny than he is same sex marriage. So you got those strong no's like that. Um, so it's an interesting discussion uh, where people follow on this subject. And like I say, uh, Dr. Goldfeder from Georgia State University. He, um, he says it's going to be probably the biggest debate in the 21st century on this subject here in America in this century. So, Well,
0: yeah. uh, well especially, you know, we're getting ready to wrap up, but um, especially, you know, just thinking about it, a lot of the arguments against same-sex marriage comes from the idea that, you know, the family, the traditional family of husband, wife, and children are supposed to reflect the Trinity. And it's uh you see you I would think you run into that problem here as well. And then you also have the problem of God does hate divorce. So what do you do with these people who are already in this and then move to America or become Christian and it's very complicated. I, I don't suppose you'll tell us where you stand on the issue, will you?
1: Well, I'm not as an editor, I'm not gonna make a public statement on it. that would be kinda of unethical to do while I'm trying to help keep a neutral perspective in the book. Yeah, I figure uh, that might be your answer. Oh, um, <laughs> Ethical. I mean, you know, being an editor, I need to be neutral in that. And I will tell you now, though, honestly, and this is um, these these scholars are making the both of them have published over 50 books. Dr. Luck and and Professor Quiggle, James Quiggle, have written immensely. They're both conservative dispensationalists and they're putting together some heavy hitting arguments. And it's been a blessing to read. I've been enriched by reading both their uh, perspectives. And um, I may there I may develop a seventh view after it's all said and done. I don't know. I may not have any <laughs> of the six views out there, but um, we'll find out, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's it's something that I think has not been discussed uh, properly enough, and I think it's something the 21st century church needs to deal with because if we're going to do evangelism, I realize that over there, um, you know, they they want to know and and they need to know, and I want to know, and I want to be able to help people
0: work work through that and think biblically about it. Amen, amen. Um. So yeah. Bef- before we move on, is there anywhere they could look to see, you know, to further this conversation and think about it? Uh, what will the name of your book be, or anything like that? Is there we don't have a name for it yet.
1: We're still trying to, you know, that the editors will meet in November and we'll talk about names. We have got a few ideas we've tossed out there. Um, we don't really know. Or. Uh, You know, this is a whole new subject, so we're not really sure what to name the book
0: yet. All right, so maybe they just keep looking you up. Eventually, they'll find the project.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we hope to publish it by end of next year. Hopefully, end of next year, twenty twenty one is probably when it'll start heading to publishing our first twenty twenty three. Well, it's a four year
0: project. Yeah, well, maybe when we get closer, we'll be able to interview about it again. Kind of I will see if we can
1: maybe, maybe we can even get Dr. Luck and uh, Professor Quiggle and uh, let them uh, come on board and talk about it as well. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, I, I would love that. I'd have to check with, you know, my boss, TJ's in charge. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for your time. Um, one question we'd like to ask everybody before, you know, we start wrapping up is um, just if you had to come up with one practical, just something tangible that anybody could do to achieve unity across this fundamental divide that, you know, kind of happened to the church between fundamentalist, liberal, anything like that. Um, what's something tangible that people could do to kind of bridge the gaps in the church?
1: Well, certainly uh, we could learn how to love First Corinthians 13. Um, some of the biggest problems in the church have not been doctrinal battles. Uh, those do happen, but a lot of times it's not a doctrinal issue. It's a love issue. And learning how to speak to people, the book of Proverbs, um, learning how to be slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger. Some of those basic principles like that go to the fundamental issues of character. I often tell people, it's not the people that we, uh, it's not when we differ with someone, uh, it's not when you're talking to somebody and you agree with them, that doesn't show whether or not you have mature character. What shows mature character is how you deal with somebody when you differ with them and disagree with them, how you speak about them and how you interact with somebody that you don't agree with. That says more about your character in the Lord Jesus than if you agree with him. So learning how to love and practice first Corinthians 13 principles of love
0: and being slow to speak and quick to hear would do a lot for the body of Christ to have unity.
2: Amen.
0: Yeah. I work with a guy I recently learned hates the word what. So I'm trying to teach myself not to say what. That's my practical takeaway from this. It's hard. I say what a lot. It turns out I can't yeah. hear anybody ever.
2: That's true. <laughs> uh, well, uh, thanks for your time. We're going to go into our outro. Uh, we like to start with our God moment segment, uh, which is just a moment you know recently in our lives wherein we saw the presence of God in one way or another, mundane, extraordinary, just anything.
0: And uh, Joshua, would you like to start? Sure. Um, as always, I have more than one. So if you want to see the others, you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast. Um, I make, sometimes I make those public in case anybody wants to look. So you, you don't have to sign up for that. You could just go look for it. But um, the one I'll share on the podcast was uh, I want to say it's about a week ago. Uh, we got two packages delivered to us from Amazon, and they were like stuck together. So they, kind of, I think the person just kind of dropped off thinking it was one package, but uh, it turns out one of them was for us. One of us was one of them was for somebody else, relatively nearby. And uh, so Tiffany saw it and decided we should try and get this to the right person. And we drove around for a while. We we could not find it was like right next to our house, but we could not find it for the life of us. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It was just one of those things where I was like, hey, we did something good for someone else. And my wife was just like, yeah, we need to do this. And it was just really encouraging to me to. See her take that initiative and to just kind of be a part of doing something good for somebody else.
2: Cool, 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 cool. All right, uh, I'll go next. Uh, I last night drove past my church, which no, I don't usually do at night because it's it's pretty out of the way of things I usually go to. Uh, but in between my church and my house, I saw like I want to say four, maybe five extremely bright crosses just you know like led lights like christmas light crosses in people's yards and i you know i thought it was really cool it's not something you see very often i don't know what it's about but it's nice to see people clearly supporting the church during this it was pretty cool yeah
0: I really thought you were gonna say you saw four angels the way you started describing the bright light. And I was like, Wow, T J you should have won yeah,
2: first. <laughs> I saw four <laughs> angels last night.
0: Now, uh, Dr. Turlin, did you have uh, anything God's been God's done with you recently that you'd like to share? Well, I've had a, a recent uh,
1: loved one, a family who just lost their husband and father who died this year. He's a pastor young he's sixty one years old and he died in, just um, been reflecting over his life and what he meant to me and the things and the blessings that have came to my life because of him in my life. And was able to encourage the, now the widow, the, the, the his wife who's left behind and um, just praying. And um, the God moment with them was um, just being able to celebrate and listen to him preach his own funeral, which he did a wonderful job of as they played some of his devotions and um, things that he had shared not too long before he had departed for glory. And so i um, just rejoicing over a saint who has departed for glory and praying for the family who now grieves in the loss of him. Right. That's powerful. Really cool.
0: He was able to speak at his own funeral. That's pretty awesome. His life
1: spoke at his funeral, and then he spoke from his own messages and teaching very well on it. I'm just thankful for his life. You know, um. that is
2: really cool. uh, Thank you for your time. We're gonna need you for, you know, probably 15 more seconds when we're done with the outro. But until then, uh, if you're listening, thanks for listening. Uh, Please consider going over to Patreon and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month. You get access to some extra content. Uh, Give us a five-star review if you don't mind. Uh, wherever you listen. And share this episode if you enjoyed it. If you didn't enjoy it, uh, share it and talk about how much you didn't like it. Uh, some future guests we're going to have. Uh, Michaela Deegan of the Coffee, Jeans, and Jesus podcast. Uh, Dan Laredo and Joe Prasad of the Enough Room podcast. Uh, Pastor Kiss Galloway, friend of the podcast we've had on before. And Pastor Ravi Brissy, who
0: we didn't have on before. But we were going on. He may be the only guy who's ever been a cabin leader to both me and TJ. Not at the same time, mind you, but
2: hmm.
0: yeah, it was pretty cool. But also, Joshua
2: was your other co-host, uh, huh. was recently on Mark Solon's podcast, Being Reasonable. Go check it out. Yeah.
0: And Please. thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, and keep listening if you want to hear our next segment. By going over to Patreon.com, the Whole Church Podcast, and supporting us for at least $3 a month. You right. could do $1, but then you'd have to ask us for the segment. Cool. Which if we, we do would do probably do. Yeah, we, we would.